0: Would you join me? We're going to pray. We'll be in Amos chapter 4 tonight, the entire chapter, and a message I've entitled, Do Not Forget Your Past. Now, we know we're supposed to forget that which is behind and press on towards the high calling, but that's not what this is about. This is a different kind. There's a negative and a positive aspect. And so let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. We're going to pray for the peace of Jerusalem tonight as well and while we pray for our time in the Word. Father, we come to you. And we recognize you as sovereign king over the entire universe. Uh, That you alone, Lord, hold nations in your hand. You raise up kings and kingdoms. And Lord, we pray right now for the peace of Jerusalem. We believe that your word is true, that they who bless thee will be blessed by you. And Lord, we pray that you would move right now to quell the violence. Uh, Lord, we know that there are many sides to the issue. But we also believe that Israel uh, has the right to inherit the land that you gave them. And so, Lord, it is your land. You gave it to Israel to possess. And we pray that you would protect uh, the nation Israel from the attacks of Hamas, PLO, and Fatah, these terrorist organizations. And also, at the same time, we ask that you'd protect the innocent on both sides, Lord, there are innocent people in the Gaza Strip, and Lord, we ask that you would shield them, protect them, keep them. And so we would ask also, Lord, that you bless your word as we study it. Uh, Lord, the the picture here is the danger of being obstinate, Lord, forgetting from whence we have come and getting uh, immovable. And so we pray that you would speak into our lives tonight through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Philippians chapter 3, you might remember that Paul, writing there to the church at Philippi, uh, said something that maybe flies in a bit of contrast to the study title tonight. Brethren, I do not count myself as to have apprehended there in verse 13 of Philippians 3, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead... I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is truth that we should also forget our past. But that is specifically the negative aspect of remembering our past. There is a negative aspect of trying to rest on yesterday's laurels, to survive on yesterday's manna, to believe that we've already been there and done that, uh, to to look at the past as an anchor, to get too anchored to our problems, all of those kinds of things. There is a negative aspect to it, but there is a very positive aspect, and that is the aspect found in chapter 4 tonight. That's the positive aspect of remembering exactly what God has delivered you from. Not a person in this room that knows the Lord that doesn't have a BC uh, before Christ. Doesn't have a time when you were not walking with the Lord. Maybe for some of you that was very young. Perhaps you came to faith in Christ as a young child and you walk with the Lord your entire life. But for a vast majority of us, we have what we call those BC days that time when we were not redeemed, that time when our life was marked by carnality in the flesh. And it is uber important that as the body of Christ, we do not forget from which we have been delivered. Every one of us has these issues. And here's what happens when you forget that. When you move to where the Jewish people are, as Amos writes, he's writing to a group of people who have forgotten that God delivered them, who have forgotten that they were carnal, who have forgotten that they were wandering in the wilderness, who have forgotten that the Lord provided for them quail and manna and fresh water at the springs of Mara. They had forgotten that from which the Lord had delivered them. They were dying in the desert and God delivered them. They forgot that. And so now they're acting like they can do anything they want. They can live their life as they please. This is the classic definition of the word obstinate. Hard-headed. It means to perversely adhere To something that you seem to believe is a course of action in spite of reason, in spite of argument, in spite of even truth. The Jewish people had become obstinate. They believed that they were God's chosen people, they believed that they were, in essence, faultless, they could do no wrong. And so they began to forget that God had delivered them. In Numbers chapter 11, there is a key passage that probably most of you should have underlined. It is the first six verses there, and it says this. And now when the people complained, okay, so where are they? They're in the wilderness. Where were they before they were in the wilderness? They were in slavery. Why were they in slavery? Because they were disobedient. What was happening in slavery? Life was hard. It was the pits. It was terrible. They they were dying by the hundreds of thousands, and they were in that bondage and in that slavery for 400 years. People complained, and it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it. And here's where it touches you, touches me. God knows exactly what you've been delivered from. And he does not like it when we start going, man, I wish I wasn't a believer. I wish I could go back to my old of life. I wish, I wish, I wish I could go back to that bar or back to that relationship or back to that drug or back to that crime or back to that whatever. Just name it. And so here it is for the children of Israel, his anger was aroused and so the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them on the outskirts of the camp. And when the people cried out to Moses, when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So when the church got busy, when the pastor preached the truth, when God's people do things God's way, God relented. And so he called the name of the place Taperath because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. And now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. That's another way of saying they fell into sin because they refused to resist temptation. Intense craving. You might even look at this as one of the mentions in the Bible of what we would classically call addictive behavior. They were addicted to sin. They failed to be separated from the world and so the children of Israel also wept again and said, here it comes, who will give us meat? We remember the fish which we ate so freely in Egypt. Isn't it weird how when you've walked with the Lord for a while, you forget exactly how bad it was in Egypt? You look at that time and say, oh man, that was so awesome when I used to party. It was so amazing. Those people I hung, they were so funny. Well, it's because they didn't have two operating brain cells. They were so bombed out of their minds. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. In other words, life was tasty in Egypt, which is a real fine way of saying, when I was in the world, things were really tasty. But now our whole being is dried up. You realize how offensive this is to the Lord? The Lord has delivered them from Pharaoh, from bondage, from slavery. They were a mess in Egypt, but somehow the only thing they remember is that they had nice spicy food with garlic in it. There is nothing at all except this rotten, stinking, Manna before our eyes and I added the rotten and stinking. Because what actually had happened was God had miraculously fed them. God had miraculously provided for them. God had miraculously healed them. God had miraculously preserved them. God had worked miracles to even keep them alive in one of the most inhospitable places on planet Earth. The Sinai Peninsula. The Anvil of the Sun once they got across the Red Sea. The, this place that today still very few people actually inhabit it. In Saudi Arabia is called the Empty Quarter. There's literally nothing and no one there. But God preserved them. we should never forget from which we have been delivered. We should never cry out for the leeks and the onions and the spicy things of our past life before we came to know Jesus. Verse 1, Amos 4, here's God's response to a people who had gotten to that place to a stubborn, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, hard-headed, obstinate people. Now, I pray there's nobody in this room that's like that or nobody that's watching online that says, you know, yeah, I take great pride in being obstinate. I take great pride in being hard-headed. I want God to have to hit me with the holy baseball bat of the Bible. Hear this word, Now, I want you to notice that here in verse 1, this is one of those passages that you can't mistake what's being said here, and it's pretty direct. You cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, guess who that makes them, wives, bring wine and let us drink. This is the wine mom's club right here. This is the Israelite Wine Moms Club that gets together every afternoon and brags about how well they're doing in the things of the world. It's really sad. It's an old problem, by the way. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days shall come upon you when he will take you away with fishhooks and your... Austerity with fish hooks. In other words, not just you, but your kids. Moms, dads, adults. I'm speaking to you. The word is speaking to you right now. What you do with your life directly affects your children. How you live your life for the Lord directly impacts your children. It has always been so, it remains so. It is also true that your children are not going to be held in guilt for your sin, but they will be directly affected by your sin. If you fall into sin, don't be surprised if your children end up with the same exact problems that you exhibit in your home. Don't be surprised if you drink in front of your children, that your children end up experimenting with alcohol. If you smoke dope in your house, don't be surprised if your children end up with a problem with drugs. Don't be surprised if you're promiscuous that your children end up with a problem of promiscuity or if you watch vile, vulgar movies that your children learn to watch those types of things or if you play M-rated video games that your children will end up doing exactly the same thing and get in huge amounts of trouble both in the world and with the Lord. Be careful. How you live your life matters. It matters to God and it matters to your children. You will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you'll be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress. Now this is a play on words, but it's a literal place. Beth in Hebrew means house L means God. Come to the house of God and transgress. In other words, come to the house of God and sin. Oh my goodness. When you are so stubborn and hard-hearted and obstinate that you want to hang on to the things of the past and delve into the things of the world, that you bring your sin into God's house... It's a sign that you better get ready for what follows in the rest of the chapter. Now, I don't want to be depressing here. I'm telling you these things in the positive sense. When you know to do that which is right, it behooves us to do that which is right. And when we know something is displeasing to the Lord, he's telling us so that we won't go there, so that we can live lives that are blessed. And so when God chastens... When God warns exactly as he says there in Hebrews chapter 12, because he does, if you endure chastening as God deals you with you as sons, exactly as the book of Hebrews says, then, then he's acting lovingly. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. This was supposed to be a fortified city of the kings of the Lord. You bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, and offer sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. In other words, everything's messed up. Everything's polluted. It's like you're you're doing the religious thing, but it's all a joke. Proclaim, announce your free will offerings. For this you love, O children of Israel, says your God. And so the Lord begins by talking to the social elite of that day. They they lived in what we would call luxury. It's a Latin word that actually means excessive. It doesn't mean good. It doesn't even mean fancy. It doesn't even mean that it can't be really, really, really nice. It means excessive. It means instead of caring about the things that matter, they cared about the things that didn't matter. They were concerning themselves with things that didn't matter. They had expensive tastes that went well beyond just enjoying the finer things in life. And this is so important to distinguish between wealth and excess. Between having much and using it for the king's glory and having much and using it for yourself. That was a problem then, it's a problem now. And the truth of the matter is that the Bible plainly declares that everything that is in your possession actually is not yours, it still belongs to the Lord. It's actually his, it's not yours. It will never be yours. The earth and the fullness of it belongs to the Lord. We are stewards and overseers of the things of God. And so Paul, writing to Timothy in the pastoral epistle, says it this way in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we will take nothing out. That's a truth, church. Everything that you have in your purview today, whatever is you know, in your house, let's just call it your house for the sake of being descriptive, Whatever car you drive, whatever is in your bank account, whatever you have, all of those things you will not take to heaven with you. It's all staying here. So the Lord says to us, be content with godliness. That's great gain. Having food and clothing with these, be content. And those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and snare into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Does that make sense to you? It does to me. And it's not saying that you can't have wealth. It is saying with wealth comes tremendous responsibility and also tremendous temptation. Why? Because wealth is an attraction to our flesh. And it is a rare person that that can sustain themselves in the face of wealth and use it only for the Lord's glory while still maintaining a wealthy lifestyle. It's just hard. And so the Apostle Paul isn't saying you can't be wealthy. The Apostle Paul is saying it's really hard to be wealthy. It's difficult to be a wealthy person in a world that exalts wealth often above the Lord. And in verse 10, and please get this correct, Because I can't tell you how many times I listen to Christians misquote this verse and turn it into money being evil. For the love of money is a root. Not the, a root. It is one of many roots. The love of money, in other words, the worship of money, because you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? So this is the agape, in other words, the substitution of Your love of God for the love of money. That's what it actually says. That is the root, a root, of all kinds of evil things. And so it doesn't say that wealth is evil. It says that if you love money, by the way Jesus said exactly the same thing, he so said, no man can serve two masters. He'll love one and hate the other. You cannot love God and mammon. You cannot agapeo God and agapeo wealth or mammon or possessions. It's impossible because whatever you love becomes your God. The children of Israel had allowed their wealth to become their God. And in doing so, they were stepping into very dangerous, a very dangerous place. And so what happened is they stopped worshiping the Lord. They took all the stuff into church. And so here's what they did. And I don't want to make too much of an insinuation here, but they just simply became religious. So they would sin on Monday, and sin on Tuesday, and sin on Wednesday, and sin on Thursday, and sin on Friday, and then they'd go to church and try and square away their debt. They would go to temple, and they would just bring more money to God, because they got plenty of money, so I'll just bring money to God. In other words, they were trying to buy God off. It's like, well, as long as I go to church, as long as I do my churchy thing, then I'm going to be fine. God was having none of it. He he was looking at everything they were doing, he's going, That's not what I want. That isn't what I desire. In other words, they were doing what we would call living in hypocrisy. Holy places became shrines of carnality. Crazy living. This is one of the things that, that boggles my mind about the church today. There's nothing wrong with having enough. There's nothing wrong with even having some excess. But there is something very wrong when the church becomes about nothing but money. It's not okay with God. Why? Because it, it says to people that if I just bring enough money, then I am okay with God. God wants your heart. God wants your life. God doesn't care. He doesn't even need our money. Now having said that, we tithe, we give to the Lord because we worship the Lord. Because we want to be build churches in Africa and dig wells in Liberia and take care of homeless people in El Salvador and take care of this facility and minister to people and feed the homeless here in the South Bay and reach out to people in a vaccination clinic, which we're doing on Saturday. We want to do all those things, and all those things take some level of funding. But the church is nothing more than a place for the Lord's funds which are gathered into his house to be passed through for his purposes. We are not to be storing up in barns. We are not to be building bigger barns. We're to be building the kingdom. And if we build the kingdom, God takes care of everything. But when we start building our little kingdom with a small K and not his big kingdom with a big K, then we end up in all kinds of trouble because we will start doing exactly what Jesus warned against. We'll start to serve even in the church for the purpose of serving mammon. It didn't work for Israel and it won't work for the church today. In other words, they became hearers but they forgot to be doers. In 1 Samuel, in chapter 15, You might remember the story, and so Samuel said, has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And behold, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. The Old Testament taught very clearly that God was after our hearts. He was after the hearts of the Jewish people during this time. That's what he was concerned with. And so Amos tells them, look, you, you, you're, you're having your wine mom party and, and from God's perspective, it's like a bunch of cows around a trough. He's not okay with it. And you're being obstinate about it. And God's looking at it going, are you going to change? Are you going to give me your heart? Are you going to repent? And the sad answer was, they didn't. And so what follows then forms what we might call a warning. It's the Lord's scourging. In other words, you pay attention to this and you look at it and go, this is how much God loves you. If you're without chastening, verse 8 of Hebrews tells us, if you are without chastening, of which you have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and you're not God's kids. So if God doesn't spank you, that's another way of saying God doesn't spank you. If he doesn't, you know, kind of put the little kibosh on your party, then you might want to wonder whether you're actually one of his kids or not. Verse 6. Also, I gave you cleanness of teeth. Now, this is kind of a strange statement. For us, we're going, well, I pay a lot of money. I go to the dentist to get clean teeth. I got the whitening trays in my bathroom. I, you know, I use the super white, bright mouthwash stuff that, like, it gets you seven shades brighter. That's not what this is about. During that day and time, they didn't have toothbrushes. They didn't have toothpaste. They didn't have dentists. In fact, most people, you could tell if, in fact, they had some money because their teeth weren't clean. They were stained from eating food. They were broken from getting pieces of rock in their grain, there was a problem. If you had clean teeth, it was a sign you were starving to death. You shouldn't have clean teeth. You should have dirty teeth. I gave you cleanliness, cleanliness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all of your places. Yet notice it, just underline this each time it comes up. You have not returned to me, says the Lord. That's chastening. I also withheld rain from you when there were still three months to harvest. I made it rain in one city and withheld rain from another. In other words, he was fair. God was just. He didn't just blanket starve everyone. He chose which city got rain and which city didn't. And I withheld rain from one other city and one part I rained upon and where it did not rain, the part withered So in two or three cities, you wandered to another another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. And I want you to see this model. Very often when God allows disastrous things in our lives, things we don't like and don't want and would rather not have, The question often we should ask is, is God trying to get my attention? Is your water barrel empty because God's speaking? Are your teeth too bright white? Are you hungry because God is speaking and you haven't returned? I blasted you with blight and mildew, verse 9. When your gardens increased, your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured them, and yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with the sword, and all along your captive horses I made the stench of your camps to come up into your nostrils, and yet you have not returned to me. I overthrew some of you, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a firebrand plucked from the burning. In other words, when you take a coal out of a fire, it has to burn on its own and it snuffs out. It's like when it's in the fire, it will stay hot longer. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. And I want you to look at verse 12. And this is meant to scare no one, but it is nonetheless an indicator of God's manner of reckoning with his kids. The Jewish people are God's chosen people. They are his children. He loves them dearly. We are his kids by grace. He loves us dearly. And therefore, thus, I will do to you, O Israel. The name means governed by God, people who are governed by God, and though it's not a direct correlation that one is the other or the other is the one, it is indicative of God's character and nature that when you are God's children and you will not return after he has sent upon you some things to get your attention because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Ouch. In other words, when I made your teeth clean, when I withheld the rain, when you didn't have water to drink, when I blasted you with blight, when the locust devoured your crops, when you went through a plague as the manner of Egypt, when there was stench in your camp, when I overthrew you, when I plucked you out of the fire, you refused to return to me, and so... Here's all I got left. This is super important for people that persist in sin who claim to be Christians. In this case, it was Israel, God's chosen people. But it applies in this way to us in the age of grace. When you have been the recipient of grace, you're supposed to walk in grace. It is no longer you who live, it is Christ who lives in you, and the life that you now live, you live for him. This is the truth of the Christian life. And while we are not sinless, while we are at home in these mortal bodies, we should absolutely be sinning a whole lot less. And when you choose to persist in things that God has delivered you from, when you go back to the pig trough, when you go back to the vomit, I'm being descriptive because Paul did the same exact thing. When you go back to where you used to dwell and you agonize over the party people or the relationship or the junk that was in your past, when you start dwelling on that stuff, don't be surprised if you end up with some really gnarly things coming into your life. Because God loves you. God loves you. He knows that those things were killing you. And so when you have friends that you know that are trying to convince you, hey, it's really awesome back here. We sure miss you, brother. Isn't it weird how freaky people will just out of nowhere Facebook message you? Like past boyfriends or girlfriends or old flames or people you used to party with, man, we sure miss you. You know, like we used to hang out and you know, like you were the most awesome person ever. What they're really saying is, we'd love to destroy your life. Satan told us to call you. You know what I'm saying? It's like, hello, El Diablo. And we're like, well, yeah. Man, prepare to meet your God. He, he, he will not just turn a blind eye continually. Pharaoh was trying to kill the Israelites, and somehow all they remember is the pots of meat. They don't remember that they were dying. Does that not exactly explain some of the memories you have in your head about your BC days? Now, I don't, look, a little confession here. Child of the 60s and 70s, there's some music still stuck in my head that when I hear it, I, it's like, it's like oh, man, where did that come from? It's like instantaneously back to, and you're like, Oh, yeah, that's good. Have any of you ever done this? You start humming the song. Then you start kind of mouthing the lyrics. Then you go, oh, my goodness. That's what that says? And so the devil's going, oh, but it's a really catchy tune. Then you realize what's being said. just like, There was a song about premarital sex. There was a song about being drunk. Look, confession time, I'm a John Denver fan. Me and my old lady just sitting past the pipe around. They were getting stoned. And and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, isn't that just like this pastoral scene of them sitting around a campfire? They were getting lit. And all of a sudden, you're like, Oh, well it wasn't that bad yes it was yes it was that bad but the enemy wants to try and tell you no it wasn't it's okay it's just a song song turns into two and then comes El Diablo line two And so they got obstinate. They were stuck in their old ways. He that forms the mountains creates the wind and declares unto man. What is his thought that makes the morning darkness and treads upon the high places of the earth, says the Lord God of hosts, verse 13. God's like, Look, I'm the one that gave you breath of life. I created the mountains. I created the water you drink. The stars you look at, I put them in space. You don't want to worship the stuff that I created. You want to worship me. Have you forgotten what I've done for you? So much so that you would long for the good old days? That you take security in those things, in those memories. I can't tell you how many people I have talked to over decades of ministry that want to go back to their old life. Well, you know, I constantly run into couples. Well, you know, wish we hadn't have gotten married. Well, the fact of the matter is you did. You made a covenant before God. And you dreaming about what could have been with your high school flame is not going to help your marriage. It's going to destroy it. And so God says, look, you better be careful. Return to me. Notice what he says. Really the context is return to me. In the negative, in our passage, they wouldn't return to him. But in the positive, what was God getting at? He wanted them to return. All you have to do is just look at the converse of the statement. So this is what he says they didn't do, so it obviously is what he wanted them to do. Return to me. Come back to me. Flip a 180, do a U-E-y. You know, sometimes people look at the word repent like it's some dirty word or something. It simply means to be able to turn around. It means to have a change of mind that results in a change of action, a change of direction, a course change, if you will. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. When you recognize you're going the wrong direction, you're thinking the wrong things, God is saying to you, look, I don't want to bring disaster your way. I want to bless you. But if you keep persisting in going the wrong way, if you will not do the 180, if you won't return to me, then you will leave me no choice but to meet you at the place of your sin. And that's a hard beating. That's a tough meeting, church. It's not a meeting you want to have. Because God loves you enough to know exactly how many of your teeth to knock out metaphorically. Do you understand what I'm saying? He knows exactly how hard to hit you. He knows whether you need to be dropped on the ground or whether you just need kind of a little slap. Now, I'm not suggesting violence here, but what I am suggesting that in a metaphoric way, God knows exactly what kind of spanking you need. And if you persist in sin, you're forcing his hand. Why? Because he loves you. Now I want you to notice how severe these things were. They were horrifically severe. God's not past bringing horrific, severe things into your life because he loves you. This is unabashed truth. This is, this is, a, this is a Mona Kea on the big island of Hawaii. When you're sitting in Hilo and you're looking at two vertical miles straight up, it's like it covers the whole horizon. Why am I saying that? Because a truth like this, prepare to meet your God, can even be yanked out of context and it's still true. That's how big it is. When you persist, when you will not turn, prepare to meet your God. This is equivalent to John 3:16, which you can't take out of context. It's just true all the time. This is a Revelation 3:20 thing. This is behold I stand at the door and knock. This is a true all the time thing. This is a Romans 10:9 thing. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you're going to be saved. This is a, this is true doesn't have to have context. If you persist and will not return to him, you will leave God no choice but to say, prepare to meet me. Because I love you. Now maybe for many of you, tonight this message actually isn't for you. It might be for your kids. It might be for somebody that you're going to meet next week. It may be for somebody that you know at work that you know has professed that they love the Lord or they know the Lord or they go to church, but they're living in a way that's displeasing to God, you have to tell them at some point in time, prepare to meet your God. Why? Because the Bible is clear, whatever a man or a woman sows, that he or she shall also reap. It's a spiritual law. You do not get away with stuff forever. Now, the good news is God's really gracious and super kind. And he's very long-suffering. So I'm not suggesting to you that, you know, because you had a wicked thought in your mind that God's going to, you know, zap you back to the dark ages spiritually. That also is not true. But God doesn't let his kids persist in a direction that's going to harm them. He just won't do it. He will not do it, church. He's going to get a hold of the back of your neck, just like he does with the Jewish people. He says, if i got to put a fish hook in your nose, I'm going to pull you back where you need to go. We have to be prepared to meet God. Now, the good news is, if you're walking with the Lord in spirit and in truth, if you're loving God and you're doing what he asked Being prepared to meet him is a joyous state of being, amen? It's just like, Lord Jesus, come get me, because I can't wait to see you. It's like, I don't even know what I could do that I'm not doing, but if there's something else that you would like me to do, please help me to do that, but I am ready right now to see the face of my Savior. Right now. If Jesus were to peek his head through the clouds, I would be going, hallelujah, hallelujah. But you know, I wouldn't feel the same if I was in the midst of an affair. I wouldn't feel the same if I were going to a party after church to go get loaded. I wouldn't feel the same if I was engaged in some type of nefarious business activity. I wouldn't feel the same if I was ripping off innocent people. I wouldn't feel the same if I was violent. I wouldn't feel the same if I was bitter. I wouldn't feel the same if I was angry. I wouldn't feel the same if I was about to go kill my unborn child. Please forgive me for making things so blunt. But see, you won't feel the same when you're in unrepentant sin. You're going to be going, man, I hope God doesn't come back today. I'm hoping he doesn't come back tomorrow because my life's a wreck. And so what does the Lord say to that person? Return to me. Come back to me. I'm right here. I'm right where I've always been. And I love you. I don't want to smack you. I don't want to punish you. I want to love on you. This is where we come to those places to where Scripture comes alive. Do you not know, Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And you can make all kinds of debates whether Paul's talking about someone who's saved or not saved. It doesn't matter. The unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God, period. And so unrighteousness shouldn't be in the life of a child of God. It ought to be something that's a byword to us. It's something that's part of our past. It should not be part of our present. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, why would God say something so specific? Because he loves us. And he wants us to leave those things and turn to him. Church, you cannot... Must not, do not get to set your own parameters whereby you will live your life for the Lord. God set those parameters by giving us His Word. He's the one that dictates how we're supposed to live. And you don't get to set your own parameters for how you're going to live once you get there. Children of grace live in grace, they walk in grace. They live and breathe and eat and sleep in grace. Which is filled with the life that's been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Which means we should live in as much sinlessness as we possibly can. We shouldn't be good at sinning. Five times in this passage, the children of Israel were warned to not be obstinate about their sin. Yet you have not returned to me. That's a warning. Jesus said something even more severe in Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Now, before you get legalistic, before you look at that as some veiled threat, what Jesus is saying, you you can't pretend to be a Christian. You can't keep your sin and say you love God too. Those two things are incompatible. And that journey that we're on that we call sanctification should be a more sanctified state day by day. I should be more like Jesus, not less like Jesus, every day that I'm on this planet. I should have more conviction about my sin, not less conviction about my sin. I should be closer to the king, not further from the king's court. And so Jesus basically, through the prophet Amos, gives us a New Testament example there that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6 to say, look, when these things come, they came because you wouldn't turn. These are the things that God does to discipline. Famine, verse 6. Drought, verses 7 and 8. Now, I'm not trying to make a direct correlation, but maybe... Could it be that some of the things going on in our country right now are the direct result of the sin of this nation? I don't know. Seems very likely to me. How about our state? How many of you know that we actually live in a semi-arid desert? The state of California is a semi-arid desert. Even though we have the high Sierras that run right down the middle of the state, Even though we have hundreds and hundreds of lakes in those mountains and we have rivers off of both sides, we live in a semi-arid desert. You think maybe God's getting our attention? Because we who live here in Southern California, if you haven't noticed, there are a whole lot of rivers around here. And there's a whole lot of people. Maybe God's saying, hey, return to me. God was being true to his covenant warnings, by the way. The children of Israel were not without warning that this would be the case. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord himself speaks this through the prophet Moses. The Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you. In other words, the king that you picked to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. When you turn away from the true and the living God, don't be surprised if you end up worshiping a God of wood and stone. Something that cannot satisfy, cannot provide. And God goes on through that passage, writing through Moses, You'll beget sons and daughters and they'll not be yours for they shall go into captivity. God had warned them. God said, look, don't do this. And so because of that, these things which God brings on them, the sickness, the defeat in war. Deuteronomy warned them. The Lord will cause your enemies to rise up against you. You will be defeated before their face, They shall come out against you and every way you turn up to seven ways they shall find you is exactly what Deuteronomy 28 said. God warns for a reason. He said, look, this calamity is going to come. And so when the Assyrians come, the Israelites couldn't go, well, that's not fair. When the Babylonians come, I can't believe God would do that. Or when it happens in our lives, we cannot say to God, well, God's not being fair to me. No, God's being very fair to us. Think about it. They had to worship God through the law. Very tough to do, by the way. We worship God by grace and through faith a whole lot easier. Amen? We believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're saved. Our life begins to be transformed, renewed. Our minds are changed. We're supposed to offer him our worship, our lives. The Jewish people had to bring sacrifices, bloody, messy, yucky sacrifices. They had to be very, very cautious about how they worship God. 613 different things that they needed to do eventually to be pleasing to the Lord. We have to do one thing, believe on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. And we don't even do that right. We're still dabbling in the things that God tells us he doesn't want us to do. And so he brings defeat. He brings catastrophe. He brings calamity. He brings earthquakes. He brings all these things. And ultimately, he basically says, look, I, I, I don't want to do this, but I, I'm going to have no choice but to judge you. You see, here's the crazy thing. Every single person Who has ever lived, ever lived, from Adam to whenever the Lord ends the age of grace, every single person will one day stand before the Lord at one of two judgments. Either at the Bema seat, the judgment seat, the seat of rewards in heaven, or at the great white throne either to hear, enter in, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart, for I've never known you. The only difference between those two judgments is what did you do with the grace of God? What did you do with the grace of God? How did you respond when God said, this is what I expect out of you, Jeffrey? When I'm bad, he uses my whole name, Jeffrey. Jeffrey, this is what I expect out of you. I want you to love me with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And oh, by the way, Jeffrey, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And oh, by the way, Jeffrey, by this all men will know that you are my disciple, Jeffrey, if you have love one for another, if you love the body of Christ, if you love the church. And oh, by the way, Jeff, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God by doing all these other things. Those things are what were part of your past, and you longing for those things are going to get you a spanking. This ends really with the doxology, if you want to look at it that way. As God reminds the Jewish people, the Israelites, that He's actually their creator. He's the one that made them who they are. And he knows your days before there were yet any, before you were even born. He formed you in your mother's womb. He numbered your days. He has loved us with an everlasting love. He is unwilling that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Church, church, He can tread the mountains and nobody can hinder him. No weapon fashioned against him can prosper. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If he be for us, who can be against us? But those truths come at a cost to us. Our lives are no longer our own. Our lives have been forfeit for the cause of Christ We are now living sacrifices for the one who saved us. We've been called into that kind of relationship to where there should be nothing that we can hide from him. He is the Lord of hosts. He's the God of the armies of the earth. He raises up kings and kingdoms. Being obstinate is a very unwise thing in light of who he is and I pray that no one here would choose that and I pray that when you give counsel to other people who might be dabbling in things that are unpleasing to the Lord that you would be bold to tell them that's not okay with God that God wants to bless you he doesn't want to have to meet you that way He wants to pour out blessing upon your life and the easiest way is when you find something that doesn't stack up to what he wants you simply turn back to him if we confess our sin he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness isn't he that's who he is it's what he wants for us He doesn't want to bring famine or catastrophe or war. He wants to bring you a fruitful vine. He wants your family to be blessed. And so the short path to that is to bless him. To give your life to him. To use for his purposes and plans. And in doing so, you set yourself up to be blessed. It's kind of a win-win thing, isn't it? Bless God, He blesses you. Let's not be obstinate. Amen? Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer? We have a prayer team available in our prayer room. Maybe you've got something going on. You've just kind of been struggling a little bit. You want to pray with somebody. Let's go to the prayer room and say, hey, look, I've been struggling with this and I just really want to end it right now, right here tonight. I don't want it to be over in my life. God's good at taking our stuff and dealing with it. We're not good. So give it to him. Father, we thank you that you are so good to us. Lord, you you don't delight in chasing us. You take no delight even in the death of the wicked, Lord, much less in the punishment of your children. And so we thank you that that is true. And we pray, I pray, if there's anyone that's struggling with some area of sin in their life tonight, that Lord, they wouldn't take it home with them; they just leave it here. You can be squared up tonight with your people, Lord. If we'll just turn to you, as you told the Israelites, Lord, let us so be. When you show us ways that we're not supposed to go, would we be quick to turn around and come back to you and get back into that place of blessing? Lord, I pray if there's anyone tonight that doesn't know you, they'd recognize and see that you love them. Lord, your grace is available to just simply cry out and confess their sin and invite you to come in and be Savior and Lord, that you will. will inscribe them in that book of life, Lord, never to be removed. And God, we just thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, your tenderness. Lord, pour it out upon our nation cause us to get back to that place to where you can bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.